What am I holding? BYOC. <laughs> Bring your own communion. Anybody do that today or not? Some of us did. Some of us haven't gotten the memo or watched the video yet or just forgot. Um, but um, at the end of our gathering today, and most of our gatherings, we want to end it by after we hear the gospel of Jesus Christ to eat and drink it because that's what he would have us do. And um, I'll also just put this out to you right now, both those who are gathered and, and to those who are live streaming. Um, our communion today will have a time of open mic where 30 seconds or less for people to get up and speak of the faithfulness of God in your life. So that could be something that you're thinking about right now. And the reason we say 30 seconds is so that um, more than just a few of us can participate. And for those of you who are live stream, um, you have that screen on the right side where you can type things into your community and, uh, and give testimony that way. Okay, so we've been looking at the Holy Spirit this summer. And we've been looking at kind of how the Bible paints these big brushstrokes of the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives and in our world. Today we're going to get really personal. I want to personalize this. This can't just be something that we know. This has to be something that we experience. So let's go in our Bibles to 1 Kings chap chapter 17. Found on page 283, if you have a blue Bible, I looked it up. And then kind of as a B story or as a supplemental story, we'll look at 2 Kings 4, which is found on page 292, if you have a blue Bible. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. First Kings 17. We'll begin at verse 7. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. What brook? Anybody know? It's the brook where Elijah is uh, being given water and where God is miraculously feeding him. It's a little desert paradise that God has provided for him. But that dried up because there had been no rain in the land. And then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, go at once to Zarephath, to the region of Sidon, and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath, and when he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and asked, would you bring me a little jar of water so I may have a drink? And as she was going to get it, he called and bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, which is very interesting. This is a pagan place. But she addresses Yahweh as God. She replied, I don't have any bread. Only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home to make a meal for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. 
Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first, make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. And then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. The jar of flour will not be used up. The jar of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. So this woman went away and did all that Elijah told her to do. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word that the Lord had spoken to Elijah. Beautiful story. As a supplement to this, turn to 2 Kings chapter 4. And now we're into the ministry of Elisha, Elijah's disciple. Almost the same story. But this time it's with a pastor's wife who has become a widow. It reads, the wife of a man from the company of prophets cried out to Elijah, your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that he revered the Lord, but now his creditor is coming to take my two boys as his slaves. Elisha replied to her, how can I help you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? And she replied, your servant has nothing there at all. But then she remembered, except a small jar of olive oil. Elisha said, go and ask all your neighbors for empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. Go inside and shut the door behind you and your sons and pour oil into all the jars. And as each is filled, put it to one side. She left him and shut the door behind her and her sons. They brought the jars to her and she kept pouring. (laughs) She kept pouring. And when all the jars were full, she said to her son, bring me another one. But he replied, there is not a jar left. And then the oil stopped flowing. She went and told the man of God, and he said, now go sell the oil, pay your debts. You and your sons can live on what is left. This is God's word. You can be seated. Now, I don't have time to review the ministry of Elijah and Elisha, but if you know anything about them, this part of the the Bible reads like the Gospels. Because in the ministry of Elijah and Elisha, the lame walk, the blind see, the lepers are healed, and the dead are raised to new life. So if you asked a Jew during the time of Jesus, what is the kingdom of heaven? They wouldn't give you a theological answer. They would simply say, look at the ministry of Elijah and Elisha. Because the kingdom of heaven is not just a doctrine that we believe. It's not just a set of rules that we live by. It's God's spirit that descends into the deep. It's his rule that breaks into the chaos. And when this happens, creation, new creation, the lame walk, the blind see, the deaf hear, the lepers are healed. And the dead are raised. In fact, think about when when John the Baptist even asked Jesus, Jesus, are you really the coming one? 
Jesus does not answer John's question with a, a, a theological answer. Instead, he says, hey, look, John, don't you see? The lame walk, the deaf hear, the blind see, the dead are being raised. And I have to say, this is why I appreciate our charismatic brothers and sisters. Because they are not willing to reduce Christianity to just a set of doctrines to believe. They are not willing to reduce it to just a way of life or rules to live by. But they insist that Jesus came to unleash this world-changing, world-transforming reality, which isn't all future, but has already begun and is at work in our world today. And so in light of that, I ask, is that happening here? Is it happening in us? Is it happening through us? Or if we just reduce this to, what are we going to learn today? We need to also start thinking, what is God going to do today? And not just in this moment, but when we leave here. And as priests, what is he going to do in us and through us, in his world, for the glory of Christ, to bring healing, renewing, restoring Now, the immediate context of of the first story I read was famine. Famine is a regular part uh, of the biblical world. Famine is always connected to to rain or lack thereof. Because here's how it works in, in the biblical world. You're lucky to see a drop of rain for eight months. Eight months, there's no rain. Then you have four months where you're just hoping enough rain comes. Because if there isn't enough rain, there is a crisis, a national crisis. No rain, no food. Now, Elijah, who is a prophet of God, has just made an appointment with the king, King Ahab, and he tells him God is shutting the heavens. He's turning off the faucet. There's there's not going to be any rain until God decides there's going to be rain. And Elijah tells him why, because you, King Ahab, and your pagan wife Jezebel, who brought her pagan gods in Israel, have turned from God and caused Israel to forsake God. And this is why running out is a major theme in this story. For Elijah, his brook runs out of water. And as I said, that brook represents this little desert paradise that God provided. But now it takes away. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. So God sends Elijah to a foreign nation, to actually the hometown of Jezebel, who is the pagan wife of Israel's king, who brought all this pagan worship into Israel. So think about this. Not only does God send Elijah to a pagan city, to a pagan nation, where pagan Jezebel is from, but on top of that, God sends Elijah to a widow, a dirt-poor widow. But yet, this widow is going to be Elijah's salvation. 
Then there's this widow. Running out also defines her life. Her marriage has run out. Her husband dies. She's a widow. Not only is she a widow, but she has a son. And we know from the next story that the son is small enough for her to carry in her arms, which tells us she is a very young widow with a very young son. And her cupboard is bare. She has nothing in her house except for enough food for one more meal, which she is preparing to eat with her son and then die. Now, life has dealt this lady a pretty cruel blow. Empty, bankrupt, not even just helpless to feed herself, but helpless to feed her beloved child. I mean, just put yourself in her shoes because it's not hard to imagine how her life has run out of everything. Hope, joy, meaning. And some of you are in this place today. You feel like this widow. You feel like Elijah. Your life is on empty. Your brook is running dry. Your cupboards are bare. There's nothing left in the tank. Maybe you're here today and you're running out financially. Maybe you lost your job. Or maybe it's just the fear of, of, of what's going to happen next and it's just overwhelming to you. Maybe today you're running out relationally. You're lonely. The friends that were once in your life are, are, are just not as accessible. Maybe you're here today and your health is running out. Or maybe you're here today with someone who, that you love whose health is running out. Maybe you're running out of patience. Maybe you're running out of perseverance, the courage to face life. Some of us right now might even be running out of faith. Some of us might be running out of hope. I mean, look at our world. Our world right now is running out. It's running out of a lot of things, and, and, and not just material and, and financial things, but our world is running out of peace. It's running out of hope. It's running out of justice, vision, meaning. Do you know that eventually everything in our world will run out, everything except God. And that might be bad news to you, but I want you to see that that's not just good news, that's great news because God is the very thing we need. Our heart's deepest longing, our soul's deepest craving whether we know it or not, is for God. And here's the deal. God hasn't gone anywhere. In fact, not only has God not gone anywhere, but he's still here with his arms wide open saying, come to me, all you who are weak and heavy laden. Just come. But here's our problem. Our problem is that 
we reject this idea that God is all that we need. We'd rather think that what we really need is more money, more friends, more vacations, more influence, more likes, more food, more house, more car, more time, more education, more stocks, more health, more wealth, more, 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 more. But do you see how when we actually get these things and get a lot of these things, how they can actually work against us getting what we actually need? Because we make these things our savior. These become the gods that we worship. And this is why running out can be a really good thing for us. And yes, I said it. I'll say this. Sometimes we need a crisis. We need a crisis to know we're not in control. Look at our world right now. What? Why is our world reacting the way it's reacting? Have you asked yourself that? Because we don't have control over something. Tell me today. I'm going to have you just ask yourself some honest questions. What are you turning to to fill your cup? Or I can ask it from this, this level. Are you anxious? Are you afraid? Angry? Do you find yourself getting irritable? See, these are all signs of us turning to the wrong things. And then in seasons like this, so many of us double down on what we think is going to fix our problem. If I just get more of this, if I get more of that, if I can just hang on to this or preserve. Man, what a time for us to repent of doubling down on those things. And what a time for our hearts to double down on God. And like David, say to him, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul longs for you. My body pants for you in a dry and weary place where there's no water. In fact, this is the prerequisite to everything that I'm now going to talk about because if we don't have this hunger and thirst for the living God, we might learn a few new things today, but our lives will never be changed. And here's Elijah. His river dries up. And look at him. No complaining, no whining, no sense of entitlement. Only childlike trust and obedience. God says, go, he goes. No questioning, no arguing. He walks 75 miles to a strange land to meet a strange widow who also has nothing, and he still doesn't panic. He doesn't fret. Only humble ob obedience and trust. God, make us into Elijah's. Or how about this widow? This weirdo shows up. You guys, Elijah is a weirdo. He dresses like a weirdo. He talks like a weirdo. He is a, he too is a stranger from a strange land. 
And I want you to feel her dilemma in verse 12, 1 Kings 18, or 17, verse 12. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jar, and I'm gathering a few sticks to take home to make my last meal for myself and my son, and after that we're going to die. And what you're asking from me is that last meal. What would you do? Only a selfish, selfless person would be torn here. Now the miracle that it sues is, is really something beautiful. God fills this widow's emptiness with fullness. And it's not only that her empty cupboards are made full but her empty life becomes full of God. And this miracle, as we just read, will be duplicated by Elisha. Both stories involve bankrupt widows. In fact, in Elisha's case, uh, the widow says to Elisha, when, when Elisha asks her what she has, all she says, I have, I have nothing. I have nothing. But then both miracles involve empty jars. Both involve the filling of these empty jars with oil. And, and we're left saying to ourselves, what does all this mean? Well, let me start with this. Miracles in the Bible, as we've learned in the past, are more than miracles. Oftentimes, they act like parables. They're actually teaching us things about God. They're teaching us things about ourselves. And they're teaching us what God is doing in, t in the world to restore shalom to chaos. For instance, oil in the scripture is a symbol of the filling and the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And the oil we're talking about, it was specified in our text, it's, it's oil from the olive tree. And the olive tree itself is the symbol of God's people. And so the oil of the olive tree represents the life of the tree. And the life of the olive tree is the oil. It's God. It's his presence. It's God flowing into that tree and flowing out of that tree into the world. This is why all the kings, prophets, and priests were anointed with oil. They were anointed with God and God's presence and God's power. This is why all the furniture in the tabernacle and then later the temple was regularly anointed with oil. It was, it was not just to, to, to make them slippery and uh, to smell a certain way, but it was to say, God, would you just fill every inch of your house with your power, your presence, this is why in James 5, in our New Testament, why, why James says that when you pray for the sick, anoint them with oil. It's not that there's something magical in the oil, but that oil symbolizes the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, another biblical symbol that's attached uh, to the oil is also fire because, well, think Pentecost. What came down? The spirit in fire and, and just landed on each believer. And the reason why oil and fire are, are, are connected uh, to give us this profound picture of the Holy Spirit is because in the ancient world, all their lights, their electricity, was the combination of oil and fire, which was 
placed in a lamp. And it's the oil that fueled the fire. And this is why in Zechariah 4, the prophet has a vision of this golden lampstand. And on each side of the lampstand is an olive tree that is channeling water into a bowl above the lampstand. And that oil then is being poured, the oil from that bowl is being poured into the lampstand. You're like, what does this mean? Well, the lampstand, just like in Revelation, represents God's people. And that oil represents who and what we are. Because if we don't have the oil, there will be no fire. And there will be no light. And our call to be a light in this dark world could never happen. But this picture is two olive trees giving all their oil to this bowl that pours it into the lampstand. And then God says, it's not by might, it's not by power, but it's by my spirit, says the Lord. Jesus' mission statement, he takes it from Isaiah 61. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me, and he has anointed me. Jesus is dripping of the oil of God to do what? To preach good news to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom to the prisoner, recovery of sight to the blind, to set the captive free. Because that's the work of the Holy Spirit. I mean, do you know who the Holy Spirit is? Do you know what the Holy Spirit does? Sometimes the best definitions in the Bible are the first usage of that word or concept. The first time the Holy Spirit is used in the Bible is in the very first verses when God is creating the world and it says the Spirit hovered over the deep. The deep is the chaos. And if you want to know what's front and center, how God just takes the chaos and turns it into shalom, shalom. It's the spirit that moves into it. God speaks. He speaks to the chaos. And if you don't know this, because in Hebrew, the word for spirit is also the word for breath. And think about what it takes to speak. It requires breath. As God speaks, his breath. His ruah, his spirit, goes into the chaos. And the lame walk, and the blind see, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised, and new creation is unleashed. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's why both these stories about these widows, the very next story is a story of resurrection. And so look at our story. Not only is 
the oil there representing the Holy Spirit, but what is the oil placed in? It's placed in these clay jars. And what do these clay jars symbolize? Well, this goes also back to Genesis when God created, and it says this in Genesis 2, verse 7, then the Lord God formed man from the dust, literally from the clay of the ground, and God breathed. That's the same word as spirit. He, he, he spirited them. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and that man became a living thing. So if you want to know what we are as humans, what God made us to be, we are one part clay. From clay we have come, and from clay we will return. But we're also one part his breath, his spirit that he has breathed into us. And if you want to know right now why our world is so messed up, it's because humans are so messed up. And if you want to know why humans are so messed up, it's because we have lost God's breath. Yes, we still breathe, but God is no longer the air that we breathe. And this is the significance then in John's gospel Right before Jesus is ascending to heaven and sends them out, it has this unique detail. It says, and Jesus breathed on his disciples. He breathed on them. And then he said, receive the Holy Spirit. And in that moment, what was lost in Genesis is now being regained. A new humanity is being born, refashioned. Think about Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 4 where he says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. And what are the jars of clay? It's us. And Paul says within these jars of clay is this awesome treasure. What's the treasure? It's the oil of God's raw transforming presence through his Holy Spirit. So when Elijah and Elijah ask the, 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 the widow that they are serving, what do you have? They each say back to him, nothing except for a jar of oil. all we are. We're little jars of oil. And this caused me this week, as I, as I just thought a lot about this, to reflect on this jar of oil, the Holy Spirit in my life. And I can say, in, in, in spite of all that I am, there's good, bad, ugly, I mean, but I can say that the, the abiding, powerful presence of God's spirit has been the sweetest thing in my life. God's spirit is constantly doing the work of, 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 of pointing my eyes, fixing my eyes back on Jesus when I'm tempted to fix them on myself, especially when I most need him. It's God's spirit that actually cause, causes me to, to, to love and, and to care, especially for the underdog and, and, and the least and the hurting and the broken. It's God's spirit who gives me wisdom 
when I have no idea what I, what I need to say or what I should say. Even right now, I couldn't be up here. I couldn't do what I do. I couldn't say what I say apart from the Spirit of God. His Spirit gives me strength when I'm weak. He humbles me when I become proud. He sensitizes me to all my sin. He even causes my heart to repent. And if I have done any good or if I have impacted any life in any way, it's all the work of the Holy Spirit in my life. It's all, it's all the Spirit. As Paul says, we're, we're, we're just these clay jars, but, but, but we're filled with this treasure, with, with, with the oil of God. And, and go back to that widow's clay jar. Think about what happened to that clay jar every day. Every day, two things occurred. God miraculously poured in, and the jar was poured out. Next day, God miraculously poured in, jars poured out. And I believe herein lies the secret to the whole thing. To being a mighty man, a mighty woman of God in our world today. It is simply seeing ourselves as little clay jars of oil. That as we seek God with all of our heart every day, God, he pours in. He pours in his oil, his presence, all that he is, his grace, his truth, his word, all that we need to have life, to live Christ-like lives, and to be agents of his transforming power in the world. And God pours all of this in, not because we're so good, not because we're so spiritual or we're so religious. He does it to the extent that we're like this widow, that we're dependent and bankrupt and poor and desperate and needy. And then God pours in just enough for each day. No more, no less than what we need. And then we pour it out. We expend our lives, ourselves, for Christ and his kingdom. This is what Paul said. It was part of the metaphor for his own life. And to the church in, in, in Philippians, he says, I'm being poured out every day like a drink offering. And I know what some of you are thinking right now. Because I think this all the time. You're thinking, I have nothing to pour out. <laughs> it's scary how often I feel that. And I feel that so often at the deepest level. It comes out just like this. God, I have nothing. We have this conversation all the time. I can't tell you how many times I walk in on a Sunday morning and literally I'm having this conversation with God. God, I have absolutely nothing to do. How many times you, you, you walk into hard situations where people have lost a loved one? And you're just like, what am I going to say? I don't have anything. I do know when my best days in ministry were. 
It was 20 years ago when my marriage was literally falling apart and I'm ministering to high school students. We met in a gym. I walked in that gym so many times. God, I have absolutely nothing. But here's the deal. When we pour out, whether we think we have anything or not, God always pours in. He does. Here's the other thing that happens. When we pour out, we experience joy. Because real joy, contrary to what so many people think or what our world tells us, is not by getting, it's by giving. It's by pouring ourselves out, expending ourselves. And I know this flies in the face of our consumer culture, which tells us the way that we're happy is when we get things. Um, God's way is actually we are most happy when we give it away, when we pour it all out, when we expend ourselves. Listen, we are not on this earth because we have but one life to live, so we're not here to play it safe especially in a world that is running out of hope and love and justice and meaning. We are called to partner with the living God to restore shalom to the chaos of our world. And that means we're just jars of oil that pour it out. The other thing that we experience when we do this is is God. I think so many of us think that we experience God when, when we're being fed, and being fed is important, and there's times when, when, when I experience God when I'm being fed, but I most experience God when God gives me opportunities to feed other people, because this whole thing is not about giving or getting, it's about giving. It's not in consuming, but in expending ourselves. And when you look at this widow in this story, she is giving, giving, even her last meal. She is giving of her total self on behalf of others. Let me end with this. How do we become these clay jars that are filled with the oil of God? Two things. Number one. We have to embrace the outsider. I mean, look at Elijah. How did Elijah experience all that God is? It's through this dirt poor widow. And she's not just a widow, but she is someone who is culturally, religiously, socially, racially outside his tribe. In fact, if you look closely at this story, this is not just about Elijah being used to save a poor widow, but this is just as much about a poor widow, an outsider in every way, who's being used to save Elijah. I have two sisters who are both called to adopt. They adopted a total of eight kids from Uganda and Colombia. 
And I know this for a fact. People can look from the outside into their lives and say how God has used them to, to save these children. But I know, because I'm a part of this family, how much more God has used those children to save me, to save us. Because God is a God who's the God of the outsider. He's the God of the widow. He's the God of the poor. And the people right now who, who, who bristle against what I'm saying are, are, are religious people. They're spiritual people who want to think that they're so good and they're so much better than, than another group of people or how they're more right than another group of people. But when you go and look at Jesus' first sermon, it was to religious and spiritual people, the kind of people I'm talking about, who thought they were better, who thought they were more good and, and exalted and more in with God than anyone else and they love Jesus' sermon until he gets to this point and he brings up the story of this widow from Zarephath and he says there are many widows in Israel but why did God send Elijah to, to that outsider and you know what they did they picked up stones to stone him pride self-importance self-righteousness Self-anything will be the greatest deterrent to God's spirit being alive and active in us and through us. Over and over again, God says, I oppose the proud, but I give my grace to the humble. And finally, to be these jars oozing the oil of God we actually have to become like this widow. Look at her. They both say to the prophet, they say, I have nothing. I have nothing. I don't know why, but it's throughout the whole Bible. God loves desperation. For some reason, God, his heart is drawn to the hurting. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. He avails himself to the hungry and to the thirsty. He shows his power to the desperate. People who can cry out to God, God help me. And then you look at Jesus and you look at his ministry and you look at who did he touch, who did he heal, who did he save. And he says things like, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Blessed are those who mourn. Until we acknowledge our need, until we empty our jars of self, we'll never have this oil. Which means every day, we just need to be like this widow. We come to God with our empty jar. Fill my cup, Lord. Lord, fill my cup. Every day. Fill my cup, Lord. And you may have no family, no food, no clothes, no future, no spouse, 
no health, no children. Yet you'll be rich beyond your wildest dreams because you have the Holy Spirit in your life. Let's pray.